Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, fellow time travelers. I hope you're well. To help support the making of this podcast, sign up to my patreon.com site where you'll get to see me in person. Who could ask for more? Ha ha. Each week I post a video about the present day colliding with history. Uh, Last week's episode was about an incredible discovery that shed light on the murder of Thomas Beckett. The week before that I travelled back to events in ancient Greece that inspired the film 300. Uh, There's one on there about the Battle of Britain, another about buried Viking treasure. Anyway, I'm sure you get the picture. It's It's a great big bag of incredible historical moments. To get your hands on these exclusive videos, go to patreon.com and search for me, Neil Oliver. It'd be great to see you there. In the meantime, here's the next episode of my love letter to the British Isles. Cue the music. His sails are shot through, his ship was starting to list to, to one side because it was taken on water. Would you not like to surrender? And he says, I have not yet begun to fight. It's a good line. It's a good line. In this podcast, we witness the dawn of a new era. A nation angry and dissatisfied, rising in rebellion and fighting for freedom from their own government. The 56 signatories of the United States Declaration of Independence were all British subjects. One person who helped forge this incredible country, born in Arbigland in Scotland, became the founder and father of the US Navy. Audacious and fearless, John Paul Jones brought the battle for American independence back across the Atlantic to these shores and in the process became a legend. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver, And this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi Neil. In the last podcast we met as friends, sang Old Lang Syne in Dumfries and revelled in the brilliance of Robert Burns. Where are we this week? Well, it's definitely not all rosy and convivial this time, and that's for sure. Uh, During the fight for American independence, John Paul Jones, who was born in Scotland, became a proud American and brought the battle to make his new adopted country, the land of the free, to these shores. Guns primed and at the ready, he sailed with his crew across the Atlantic to attack the thriving industrial port of Whitehaven here in Cumbria. We're in the coastal town of Whitehaven, 
on England's northwest. It's a fascinating little place. It's quite out of the way, I suppose. People visit Cumbria for the Lake District, and I think they kind of tend to forget that, that Cumbria's even got a coast, <laughs> but it does. And White, Whitehaven was a significant port a couple of hundred years ago, certainly. It was a principal port for coal and other commodities coming and going. So it has mattered in the past, perhaps more than it matters now. It's a little bit overlooked. But it's a town and a port with a fascinating history. I send a, a love letter from it because it's the place that the rebel slash hero, John Paul Jones, made his name, became infamous. But we'll get, we'll get to him in a moment. It's long been my contention, we invented America. <laughs> um, when the Declaration of Independence was signed, when the Revolutionary War or the War of Independence was fought, it's important to remember that it was fought by Britons, British rebels. They became Americans, but at the time, they were British. And the, the 56 men who put their signatures on the Declaration of Independence, they were Brits. And they were upset with the government, they were upset with the British monarchy, the British government, and that was what they were rebelling against. But they were British rebels. It's too easy to think that the American War of Independence was fought by Americans. They were in the process of becoming Americans. And that's a fact. So how does that go down when you tell Americans? <laughs> well, the most I can hope for is a laugh. <laughs> others, others get more annoyed, but it's tongue-in-cheek, obviously. But it is a point worth making that those who set about making an independent separate place, the United States of America, they were British. So to that extent, America is a British invention. And when those men were putting together the Declaration of Independence, they were drawing upon British traditions. Magna Carta, or the spirit of Magna Carta, is there. The Declaration of Our Broth, both of these we've sent love letters up from and about, is there ghosting, haunting, some of the sentiment of the Declaration of Independence. It's also worth pointing out in that context that during the time of the Scottish Enlightenment, the chair of moral philosophy at Glasgow University was occupied by a man called Francis Hutcheson. And he was a churchman as well as a philosopher. And so he spoke very much from a religious point of view. And he preached, as it were, that happiness was not some random manna from heaven. I mean, a lot of people were of the opinion that God decided to make some people happy and some people not, that it, was a, that it was random, like winning the lottery. But Hutchison told his students that, on the contrary, happiness, personal happiness, was a collateral benefit of working your hardest to make other people happy. He said that if you dedicated all your effort to making others happy, improving their lives, you would be made happy as a consequence of having made other people happy. And one of his students was a chap called John Witherspoon. And John Witherspoon went out and became the second principal of what became Princeton University, Princeton College. And he was one of the signatories of the Declaration of Independence as well. And it's supposed by some that the pursuit of happiness in the Declaration of Independence, great emphasis is put on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the thinking is that Witherspoon had learned that from his old master, Hutchison. 
So there are Scottish ideas, English ideas, British ideas are there. So there you go, that's how I would justify, at least in, in a tongue-in-cheek way, saying that, you know, <laughs> we we invent we invented the United States of America. I hope I can get away with that without without causing too much trouble. Um, so which which brings us on which brings us on to John Paul Jones. Now, funnily enough, I grew up in Dumfrieshire. That's where I spent most of my childhood. And John Paul Jones was born in a wee back of beyond place called Arbigland. His dad was the head gardener on an estate there. So I grew up knowing about John Paul Jones as a kind of a local figure, in a way that maybe other people didn't. He was a local name, and he's remembered as a rebel and a traitor in Britain uh, for, for reasons which will become apparent. But in the United States, the US Navy in particular, he's honoured as the father and founder of the US Navy. If that honour can be said to go to any one individual, Americans will say it was John Paul Jones. So he was born at Arbigland on the 6th of July, 1747. And his name then, when he was born, was John Paul. His surname was Paul. He was born inland, but the life of, of the landlubber was not for him. We've spoken in, in the not-too-distant past about uh, Captain James Cook and how Cook was supposed to be a, a grocer's apprentice. Hated it, was no use at it, and his forward-thinking boss understood that his heart was in the sea and fixed him up with employment with a company that moved coal up and down the East Coast. Well, John Paul, similarly, he didn't want anything to do with gardening or, or the land. He wanted to be at sea. And so when he was 13, which sounds very young to us, but young men were, were beginning to set out on their careers at, at such a young age in those days. And at the age of 13, he went to Whitehaven and he signed on with a coastal sloop, a ship. And he signed on for a seven-year indentured apprenticeship with the Merchant Navy. And almost right away, he was as far away as places like Barbados and the colony of Virginia on the eastern seaboard of the United States. He had a big brother who had previously emigrated, who was already out there in the colonies, specifically in a place called Fredericksburg. And so he was able to spend time ashore with his big brother. And as an adult, once he was grown and, and looking back on his, on his time, he would say that he fell in love with America. From the age of 13, when he first saw it, it was his favourite place. So his heart belonged to America, in that way that some places just get you. America got John Paul. He was clearly a skillful and talented seaman, but he had a bit of a, a wild and, and violent streak at the same time. By the time he was... 21, he was a captain in the Merchant Navy and he was used to crisscrossing the Atlantic back and forth between Britain and the United States or what would become the United States. But during the 1770s, he had a run-in with the law, a significant run-in with the law. He was a captain at the time of a vessel called the Betsy and there was a mutiny aboard the Betsy and one way or another, the details are a bit indistinct, but one of the mutineers was killed and John Paul took the blame. It was his fault. Rather than face justice, he made himself a fugitive. So he abandoned the British Merchant Marine at that point. And by 1774, he had taken on a new surname, Jones. He was in hiding, basically. He was, he was concealing his identity, but he was now John Paul Jones. Where was he? He was in, he was in the States. Ah, right. 
Yeah, he absconded to, to, to America. But his abilities were recognised by no lesser figure than George Washington. George Washington made him a captain in the what was called the Continental Navy, which was a, a seagoing force that Washington had thrown together in a hurry in order to give him some kind of a chance against the seaborne element of the British forces that he would be fighting in the War of Independence. So he commissioned John Paul Jones as a captain. He was the first captain commissioned after the signing of the Declaration of Independence in 1776. So that's 1776, and by the November of 1777, he's sailing out of Portsmouth, New Hampshire, at the helm of a ship called the Ranger, which is a a warship, a ship fitted out for fighting. Uh, And he crosses the Atlantic, and first of all, he goes to Brest in northern France. But from there, he sets sail for the west coast of England. And it's apparent that his intention is to cause as much trouble as he can. The British army is in North America at this point, fighting. And he's on the other side of the Atlantic, trying to cause trouble for the Brits. So it's not an invasion, but it's an American attack on Britain. Yeah, he just comes, you know, he's, he is British by birth. He's effectively a British subject, but he's a fugitive. But he's taken it upon himself to come back and attack Britain to make trouble. So by the 23rd of uh, April 1778, he and his ship, the Ranger, are lying in wait off Whitehaven. And people have speculated long and hard about what Whitehaven had ever done to him, <laughs> you know, but it, it, that, he, that he would go and attack Whitehaven specifically. But it seems most likely that he just, he knew it well and he knew that he would be able to sail into the harbour under cover of darkness because he knew it so well. So he he chose it because he was familiar with the place and it's unlikely that he harboured any specific grudge against the place. And his plan, because as I mentioned, Whitehaven was a coal port and he knew that there would be ships, many ships in the harbour loaded up with coal and his plan was to set it all on fire and cause chaos because you know the fire in the in the harbour would spill into the town and Whitehaven would be destroyed it would be put out of action and it would cause no end of spectacular damage so that that was his plan and integral to the plan was spiking the guns spiking the town's defences the town had cannon at the harbour side for protection for specifically to protect against someone like him so his plan was to go ashore under cover of darkness with his men spike the guns and then set about setting the coal ships on fire. However, the the flaw in his plan, and it was a flaw, his crew were a rabble. Rather than a disciplined force of fighting men, they were just, (laughs) they were just rabble basically. And no sooner had he got them ashore than most of them were making their way to the the pubs and taverns in the town, (laughs) looking for alcohol and women. In the darkness and the confusion of it all, John Paul Jones himself, with a small company of men, they did indeed spike the guns, and he did indeed get aboard the coal ships, and he started a little fire. He got one of them going, but the the alarm was raised, and the locals, the good people of Whitehaven, came out in force, extinguished the fire, and chased John Paul Jones and his men away. So they just got back aboard the Ranger and took off. What should have been a spectacular fireworks display was was more of a damp squib. However, however, the mere fact that an American ship of war had crossed the Atlantic 
and come in at Whitehaven with armed men. And it was apparent what they had sought to do, even though they had failed. It absolutely put the willies up the British government. Because they had no way of knowing whether he was a lone wolf or whether there were other ships out there. Was it an invasion force? But word of what had been attempted at Whitehaven was spread to London. And the British response was to withdraw 40 ships of war from the American coastline and bring them back to defend home. So it achieved what John Paul Jones might have hoped. It took away fighting men from his adoptive country of America and the ships came back while the British government attempted to assess just how much of a threat it had actually been. And meanwhile, John Paul Jones and his ship and his men, they continued making trouble. They captured merchant ships. They did as much damage, caused as much chaos as they could. And by the time he had to go back to America, he was a legend. He had gone and single-handedly bloodied the nose of the British king. He'd really put the fear of God in the British establishment. And he came back the next year, this time with a flotilla. So he came back with multiple ships and he drew the British into battle off Flamborough Head on the Yorkshire coast. And his ship, his flagship, was the Bonhomme Richard. And it got set upon by more than one British vessel and it was, it was, in, bad, it was in a bad way. It was badly damaged by British fire and it was starting to sink a little bit. It was in serious trouble. And the captain, the British captain, uh, Captain Pearson of a British vessel called Serapis, which was engaged with him, shouted across that John Paul Jones might want to surrender. To which John Paul Jones replied, I have not yet begun to fight. And I have not yet begun to fight has been the unofficial motto of the US Navy ever since. This is their thing. I have not yet begun to fight. So it's brilliant. It's for those reasons that the US Navy have taken him absolutely to heart. And whether he is or or is not, he's regarded as the founder and father, if not of the US Navy, of the US Navy fighting spirit. I have not yet begun to fight. And uh, I've been in, I I was in Whitehaven... And every year since 1999, a US Navy warship has come to Whitehaven. And the captain and the crew come ashore and they're treated as honoured guests. It's a big, exciting day in the town. And they're welcomed in and they go through the rigmarole of declaring peace between Britain and America. (laughs) Every year at Whitehaven, the US comes and they basically make peace again. And the whole thing's light-hearted and it's all done in good heart, but it's recalling a very significant moment in history, really. There's also a statue, a really good bronze statue up on the harbour wall, which depicts the the spiking of the guns, which is where they they jam, you know, you jam something like cannonballs into the mouth of the cannon and you do damage to it. Spiking of guns just means you put them out of action. And so it's so unlikely. Little White Haven's so easily overlooked now, a backwater for many people and yet it was the place where John Paul Jones became a legend and it's the place where the founder and father to all intents and purposes of the US Navy showed his spirit showed his <laughs> showed his determination and his reckless character so it depends on what side of the Atlantic you're born and raised here here in Britain he's, re- he's officially and quite rightly regarded as a, as a traitor or worse, and in the United States of America, 
He's a rebellious freedom fighter. And in any event, whether he's traitor or whether he's hero, he is absolutely, he's a son of these islands. He's part of, he's a product of these isles. And he undoubtedly had a hand in making and shaping the land of the free. Nowadays, when we think of the relationship between the United States and Britain, we always tend to think of the so-called special relationship. So it's a bit of a hidden history shock to discover that America have actually launched attacks on these shores. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, 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 the ill feeling around the... Well, for a start, I mean, I, I, when I studied it at school, we call it the American War of Independence. And the Americans call it the Revolutionary War. And a revolution is what it was. The colonists just felt that they were just being... Basically, the, the, the British Crown was taking the mickey out of them. You know, it was demanding tax from them more and more. And yet they weren't able to vote. So it kicked up the slogan, no taxation without representation. Money was being collected from them every year and taken away from the colonies and taken back to Britain. And yet the colonists had no say in how that money be spent. And they were increasingly of the opinion that, you know, what is the point? We shouldn't regard ourselves as British anymore, which is what they were. They were British colonists. We should become Americans. We should be independent. We should break, sever all ties with that bunch and forge our own destiny, which is what they did. You know, in 1776, the Declaration of Independence is one of the most significant documents created anywhere on the planet. And as well as tongue-in-cheek saying, I think, that we invented the USA... I still think that the United States of America is still the best idea for a country that anybody ever had. They've got their problems at the moment. You know, there's all sorts of trouble and strife, as there is everywhere. You know, there's trouble everywhere at the moment. Population splits at 50-50, bitterly divided and polarised, and and the same is is sadly true in, in the United States. But the idea of America, dedicated to the pursuit of life, liberty and happiness, whoever had a better more good-spirited idea for the foundations of a country than America. But it was born in fire. It was born in rebellion. It was born out of revolution. And the, and the fighting lasted for years. And many men died to make America free. And down in the foundation layer of a country with the world significance of the United States of America is a guy born the son of the head gardener at Little Arbigland. And then... He set aboard his first ship at Whitehaven when he was just a boy of 13 and within a few years he was back declaring war on his own account, on his homeland. You know, so he's part of the foundation layer of the United States of America. He was there when it was happening. He was part of making it happen. So yeah, he's worthy of being remembered. Traitor or hero, he's worthy of being remembered. And you can see why the government here was quite worried Yes, well, you remember that you've got no, you've got none of the, the communications and surveillance that we have now. So all they would hear was that an American ship of war had come in at Whitehaven and there'd been an attempt made to destroy the port. Now, we know he was a lone ship with just one crew, but the British government had no way of verifying that. They didn't know if he was just the sharp end of, a, of an invasion force. And so in the short term, they had to treat it with the utmost seriousness, hence the recall of the 40 ships of war from the American coastline. 
hightailing it back across the Atlantic as fast as they could go because it was anybody's guess just how much of a threat Britain actually faced at that time. It became apparent that, you know, John Paul Jones had been acting alone. But in the short term, the British government had to treat it with the utmost seriousness, and so they did. They must have got a shock when this attack happened. That it was possible would be the fright. The Atlantic takes a bit of crossing, even now. And the British government probably felt insulated from the American threat by thousands of miles of open sea. But as it turned out, it, it wasn't. The Americans could come across it at will and just pick a place and attack it, which is what they did. So it was like a bucket of cold water of realisation. Hold on. Never mind us attacking them. They can attack us. They're here. The Yanks are coming, you know. <laughs> and would the, would the British government be scared about the revolutionary ideas spreading in the populace of Britain? Well, that, that was certainly... Well, as things turned out, the American Revolution inspired the French Revolution. It took a lot of its inspiration from what had happened on the other side of the Atlantic. And once the French Revolution was underway, then absolutely the British government was petrified that revolution would spread. It's like a fire or a virus or whatever. America had revolted. France put its monarchy under the knife. And there was every reason to be fearful that the same emotion and the same intent would, would cross the channel. And so anti-revolutionary feeling was very strong in Britain in the years immediately after the French Revolution. And then, of course, when it took on, after several iterations, Napoleon. Napoleon as emperor and as the leader of the French Republic, the threat was huge. But yes, it was revolutionary behaviour in America that was a huge inspiration for the French. There's something wonderful, isn't there, about the fact that his catchphrase lives on after all this time. Absolutely. You know, he's on it. He's, he's there. He's there. His, sh his sails are shot through. He's, I think one of his masts he's, was, a, was a ways. His ship was starting to list to, to one side because it was taken on water. Would you not like to surrender? And he says, I have not yet begun to fight. It's a good line. It's a good line. Great wealth beyond anything ever seen before, pouring into Glasgow, Liverpool, Bristol and Dublin. The rise of the tobacco lords and their immense fortunes, transforming parts of those cities. The fortunes they acquired made them the Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates of their day. But this commerce and the riches it brought came at a deadly human cost every pound and dollar made on the backs of African slaves. Next time, in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast, which is and always will be free, and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It'd be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. 
Social media producer is Oscar, CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. The finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 